everyone, and thank you for the download. It's Sunday, February 10th, and this is episode 6 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassy, and today I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Josh and Ben. What's up, guys? We'll talk at once. Ready? Go. I'm not used to this uh, it, group introduction. I like the individual stuff better. All right, Skipper Ben, what's up? I was going to say, uh, Debbie was sick, so the union sent me. You know, nice Muppet Vision joke in there, but now forget it. I'm not doing it now. And Sultan of Saki, what's up with you? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Smooth as ever, guys. Six <laughs> in, we've really nailed this down. <laughs> well, we so, had to. Do, we basically put Ben in a situation where we had to either interrupt or have some dead air. That and was kind of what I was going for. We both <laughs> mentally opted for dead air, so you're welcome. Well done, guys. Well done. That's on me. I'll take that one. Uh, so when we last spoke, we had a homework assignment, and uh, I think... I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with how that went, and I think we're going to go a little bit deeper into that later on in the show. But before that, we have a couple of other agenda items to discuss. Uh, first and foremost, because it's, uh, it's Tim's ego time, is discussing my trip report. So uh, listeners to the e-ticket report will know that I was recently in Disney World with my family. Uh, <laughs> give you a rundown of the players. At some point, there were as many as 14 of us together, although we never had more than 10 on any one ride. Um but it was Oof. three three days with nine people uh, trying to maximize time for the twelve year old who only had three days. Uh, it was pretty much like a game of three D chess with the number of uh, things that he wanted to do that everybody else wanted to do, and making sure that you know everybody was happy in the time that they had. So I, I kind of likened it to when people when Walt Disney would go into Imagineering and ask for the impossible and they wouldn't say no they just find a way to do it and that's that's kind of what I was trying to do and perhaps I'm overstating things but uh, my nephew wanted to um, he wanted to ride the Pandora rides twice Splash Mountain and Thunder Mountain twice Jungle Cruise Space Mountain and Mine Train visit Toy Story Land see Illumination see the Magic Kingdom fireworks and eat it be our guest in three days so uh, so he, he he wanted to do Flight of Passage twice. He was there three days, so that's that's all he did, right? He rode that twice and then <laughs> went home. Well, thankfully, he has an autistic uncle uh, who is not me, and that helps. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so we um, for the three days that he was there, we did uh, Friday. We started at the Animal Kingdom. We hopped to Magic Kingdom. Saturday started at Hollywood Studios. Hopped to Epcot. Sunday started at Animal Kingdom. Hopped to the Magic Kingdom. But that day was cut short for football because the uh, stop it stop don't stop okay just keep going exciting game by the way yeah yeah riveting riveting game as a pats fan i uh don't really ever need to see that again to be honest with quite frankly the bear paint drying experience was about (laughs) three times more exciting than that football game yep so in addition to just the sheer volume of people moving around uh we have my eight-year-old nephew who goes to the bathroom no less than 10 times a day and like most kids, waits until the least opportune time to go. Yeah. So we'll be sitting for 20 minutes. And then as we get up to do something, he declares he needs to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we were asking after every ride and that wasn't enough. But um, the the one real caveat, the one, not really caveat, the one real, I guess, I guess I'll call it a failure day was at the Animal Kingdom where uh, we had, we started at the Animal Kingdom and we had a 140 reservation at Be Our Guest for lunch. Um, and we couldn't do four attractions before a 140 reservation, which I, I, I'm going to call that a failure. And we were trying it, what, to. Do- what was the main failure mode there? So <laughs> I think it was a multitude of reasons, but um, 
the the goal was Everest safaris, Navi River Journey, and Flight of Passage. And we had fast passes for everything but Navi River Journey, and we could get a disability pass for Navi River Journey. Um, Everest was down, can't help that, so we did Dinosaur instead. Um, but we ended up not doing Navi River Journey simply from a timing standpoint. Uh, and then even then, only two of the nine of us got to be our guest on time uh, uh, over at the Magic Kingdom. But after all of this, the 12-year-old nephew chimes in with, you know, we probably should have just done Magic Kingdom on Friday and Animal Kingdom on Sunday and be done with it. So it would have made things a lot easier had he started with that and not wanted to get on things a couple of times each. But um, uh, He's nine. I blame the adults who thought that accommodating a group that large had any hope of being successful. So this, that's on me then. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> he was, I'm he comfortable was, he was, with that. <laughs> he's, he's 12. Um, but beyond that, uh, some, some highlights of this. Uh, we did get to see a parking attendant that looked exactly like Peter Griffin. Um, <laughs> did he have her voice? name was Ellie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and hopefully she did. Did you walk up and ask what grinds her gears? <laughs> I did not. I did not. Perfectly nice person, but unfortunate aesthetic, I guess. <laughs> um, There's so a reason she's working in the parking lot. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Although I didn't have to insult her. So, uh, so. Some some kind of operational things that I've noticed, and I know I am very much a vocal uh, person on my Disney experience and the entirety of the next-gen system, um, and I've been dubbed the mayor of guest services by my e-ticket report co-hosts, but uh, we had eight-day park hoppers, my father, uh, my brother, and I, to start the trip, and I had every intention of getting an annual pass, but the restrictions on booking fast passes for an annual pass limit you to seven days, which seems silly when they sell, when they sell 10 day uh, park hoppers to people. I would think that 10 days would make the most sense, but um, what we wanted to do, we got to the, we got to the parks uh, the first day at around six 30 at night and we weren't planning on going to the parks that day. So I talked briefly about this on e-ticket report, but we went to guest services to add an extra day. And because they changed the ticket system again, they couldn't really handle this, which again, $2 billion system can't handle adding a single day to a ticket. We've discussed this on this show that because of the lack of ease in booking fast passes in advance or having to book fast passes in advance, it's possible they're leaving money on the table with just those limitations that they're kind of building in with an overly complicated system and uh, you being at a disadvantage if you don't book things in advance. And I don't know if you guys have run into similar situations where you wanted to elongate your trip or spend an extra day in the parks you weren't planning on going into, but you don't run into this pro- uh, problem at Universal. You don't run into it in any of the Disney resorts around the world. Um, and something that I kind of experienced here where... Yeah, I mean... It's. I think that uh, the, the company finds itself in somewhat of an interesting position because fans like us are constantly saying we want to see them innovate, mm-hmm. and my Magic Plus and the whole you know next gen proje- project represents an attempt for them to be very innovative, uh, and that creates a, somewhat of a dilemma when you put a tremendous amount of resources and time into an innovative project and then it doesn't work, um, and I think that's the situation they're in. Certainly from the guest perspective, that that's how I would categorize it. Um, a somewhat interesting corollary is, uh, I don't know if you know who Angela Aarons was. She was the former CEO of Burberry. And no. She was hired about five years ago by Apple to be their director of retail. 
And one of the big initiatives that she was pushing for was a basically an online, uh, well, not online, but a phone-based purchasing system when you go into the Apple store. So instead of having lines, like electronic queues, basically, and, and customers hate it. But in a lot of ways, it actually reminds me of my Magic Plus because in this attempt to sort of modernize this antiquated concept of a line and you know scheduling, dealing with customers, it seems that they made it worse. So uh, Disney's not alone in its attempt to, to revolutionize the line system with, and perhaps not with the success that they hope to have. Yeah, and I, I got to admit, I've never really had an issue with it. Uh, we buy annual passes every year through our DVC membership, and I yeah. guess uh, – you know, those the, at least over the last nearly three years now, those have come at a pretty substantial discount over the regular annual pass. So, um, <clears throat> you know, you lose the convenience of the 60 day booking window and, and some of the other stuff, but I'm saving so much money on my uh, annual pass that I'm kind of overlooking that. And then when it comes to uh, the actual use and then booking our fast passes uh, before we go out there, we've just never had much of an issue on our side. I'm, uh, you know, allowed to change my mind on this at some point if we ever get really screwed <laughs> over but the way it's worked for us so far I, I wish that i could say that i hate it i like the old system much better i don't like the uh losing the spontaneity of what we want to be doing while we're out there but but isn't the, that an absolute condemnation if you liked what w- existed before much better then isn't oh, this a change that shouldn't have happened yeah oh i agree i agree 100 percent there but uh, it's also that the change has happened so i don't really you know there's nothing i can do much about it now so the way we it's can be vocal worked, about it, but we can totally be vocal, but I, I just don't have something on my side that I can say this screwed up for me. or This was a really bad experience. It's actually kind of worked the way I guess it's supposed to work in all the instances that we've gone out there and used it. So to that huh. point, I have greatly benefited from this in as much as I am familiar with the system. I assume most of our listeners are familiar with the system and a system like this benefits those in the know and yep. works that much more effectively if there are people that don't know how to use it. But yep. is that really the best course of action? I know Josh has said in the past that Disney, uh, every guest used to be on an equal footing and a knowledge-based uh, discrepancy was minimal at best. And now this is drastic if you don't have that knowledge base of pre-booking attractions beforehand. Well, well even the old system, though, there were issues that people people didn't know how to work that system as well. Some people would go in there and not realize how to get a ticket or thought you had to pay for a ticket and not end up getting one all day. Didn't know when they could get their next ticket. Uh, right. there, were, there were many issues there. Whereas if you knew it, uh, even yep. to the point where you knew where the button was on the back of the machine to push it and not have to actually put your ticket in and get right. would spit out a free one, you know, there, there were workarounds on both sides. You know what every guest knew how to use for, for since 1971, a line. Yep. Yeah. Also fair. But to, to Ben's point though, uh, really to kind of go against Ben's point. Yes, Thanks. there was, there, there, well, no, no. Cause there was, there was certainly excellent rhetorical work. There, there. there was, a, a, <laughs> there was a disconnect. People that knew how to use uh, the old paper system, people that didn't, but beyond that, if you didn't know how to use it and you saw people doing it, a simple question gets you on equal footing. Yeah. That's, that's all it took. Whereas now a simple question has to take place at some point in the past. Yeah, and I think we don't have time travel yet. So it, it's a big part of humanity to judge the severity of problems by how long the consequences hurt you. That's why you know yeah. a life sentence is considered to be a big deal. And you you have situations now where Disney guests can seriously screw up their vacation 
60 days or more before they actually get on a plane to even come to property. And that's even a half a year before uh, from like a restaurant booking standpoint. Yeah. So exactly. So, I mean, I, I think that's, that's part of it is that there's no, these are long-term, I mean, I, I guess disclaimer, severe first world problem here. And yes, there are they are, but if you're are, spending money, then yeah, that's the context of which we're talking. We live here is this first world problem, but it's, it's a problem of their own creation. Right. Um, and it's, you know, there are certain, like you mentioned Everest going down, that is somewhat of an intractable problem, right? Complex yep. machines will always break and you can do better maintenance. You can have better inventories of parts and everything. There's things you can do to make it better, but you can never eliminate that problem. This right. is a problem that really, it truly did not exist until this initiative was greenlit and put into place. So I think we have a right as customers, if not a duty to be vocal about it, because if we continue to tolerate it, they will continue to do it. Um, and the problem isn't even really with the system itself. It's the rules of the system. It's it's an overly it's an overcomplication of what was there before that didn't need to take place as part of this updated system. Yeah. The system could have been updated. The infrastructure could have been updated. The bulk of the $2 billion, I can't imagine, was invested into the FastPass system. And yes, there's a significant amount of programming involved with that, but... That, that can't well, be the entirety of the $2 billion. They did, they, they did upgrade the old system, didn't they? And you've talked about it many times on uh, your other show that I won't mention since you've already name-dropped it several times. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, MaxPass out in California. Yeah. You know, that they do have a better working of the old system that didn't cost, you know, a fraction of what they put into Florida. Right, absolutely. I, just absolutely. for context, there are organizations in the world that could take $2 billion and use it to build a space program. Right. So when you're talking about revolutionizing you know, vacation planning um, and logistics in the parks, it's, it, it's just, it is an abject failure I, I, from a guest perspective. And I think we're probably being disingenuous to give it any more credit than that, notwithstanding the fact that Ben hasn't been like punished specifically by it in a way that he can recall, which m- makes me happy for him and his family. But I, I just, I talk to lay people all the time and having moved out of Florida, I have a much better pool of people to talk to who are not, you know, lifelong Disney went there on the weekend because we live 10 miles from the park sort of people. Mm-hmm. And the feedback is just, it's universally negative without me doing anything to prompt them to make it that way. So I just have to believe that that's a pretty decent cross section of, of guests. There are absolutely people that love it. And Ben, you're going in with an understanding of how the system works, understanding of what attracts oh, yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Them for. And I, I am absolutely the same way. I can go in and really maximize my time. But the lack of spontaneity hurts that. And yep. to back to what we were trying to accomplish with our first day there, uh, we, we arrived at 630 uh, the three of us had eight day hoppers and we wanted to add a ninth day to just go into the park that day. And we didn't have any fast passes booked, but we did have uh, my brother where we could get a disability pass and the crowds were light enough that we could wait for expedition average, which is what we did. But in order for us to get into that park, they could, they didn't charge us uh, possibly in part because it was six thirty, but because they had changed the ticketing system, they couldn't properly upgrade us or at least were, unwilling to do so at whatever the cost would have been between the old and new ticket prices. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's money out of their pocket. We were prepared to pay $25 a head. And (laughs) then from there, because what he did is he gave us a one day comp ticket that expired that day. When you have multiple tickets under a single individual, 
they need to create a hierarchy over which ticket to prioritize. And he didn't right. prioritize that one day base ticket that he gave us. So, so when he swiped in, it left that one unused and used one right. that didn't have an expiration date. Right. And I, again, familiar enough with the app, I looked and saw that it was unused and that our park hopper was used. At least you're able to catch it. Right. And I, what would have happened is the last day when it wouldn't have uh, worked for my brother and my, and uh, my father, and we would have gone to guest relations and they probably would have fixed it. But if you were a lay guest, and I mean that, you oh, know, absolutely not. Basically, a guy who's not on a podcast, yeah. particularly if you had, you know, not everybody intends to use all their tickets on a single trip. So imagine you have six people and you you fly back down next year, and your intention is for one of your three or four days to be on a ticket that you bought the previous year. Like yeah. you're gonna, that's a terrible experience. I mean, those those non-expiring tickets are going away more and more. But I understand yeah. your point. Uh, basically, I have. I'm in the 99th percentile of understanding how the system works uh, relative to every other guest that's in the park. Right. And then and there's Len. me bragging. It's just the reality of the situation that you have people that go there that don't necessarily understand how to maximize what they're doing. Yep. So um, beyond that, everything that because, because of that, Disney made everything right. I didn't have to be angry about it. I just said, this is exactly what happened and I could explain it, but what would be more likely is that a guest goes in and says, Hey, I tried to do this and it didn't work. And I don't know why it didn't work. And they may not necessarily have the same results that I did. Right. Um, I think that's probably the most likely outcome, quite frankly. Right. Right. So beyond, beyond all that, the, the point that I had made uh, on here on other podcasts on, on articles that I've written is that the fast pass plus system is unnecessarily complicated. And we had a day, uh, the second to last day, we called an audible um, because we were planning on going to Epcot and uh, my mother and uh, Marie didn't uh, ha- didn't have as much time in the Animal Kingdom as they would have liked. So we went to the Animal Kingdom um, and we went there without any fast passes because nothing was available. The day before, we couldn't get one for Navi River Journey, uh, Kilimanjaro Safaris, uh, Everest, Dinosaur, Flight of Passage. None of those were available. Um, but again, we're going with uh, a disabled person. We could use the disability pass, which we used on Navi River Journey and Kilimanjaro Safaris. We went to the park knowing that we were only going to probably do a couple of rides for that reason, uh, but still spent four or five hours doing those two rides, going to see Festival of Lion King, the walkthroughs, etc. But because we decided to change up what our plans were that we made 60 days prior, we were at a significant disadvantage uh, relative to the other park guests that had planned ahead. And we were okay with it because we've been there, you know, dozens of times, but your, your casual guest that says, all right, Epcot sucks. Now I don't want to go back to Epcot on this day. I'm not going to get any benefit from a spaceship earth fast pass. I want to go someplace else. They're not going to be as lucky. They're not going to have as much convenience. They'll have to start waiting for things and be at a huge disadvantage if they decide to change their mind on a subsequent trip. So, so. At, at the risk of cutting you short, let's let's spin this in the imagineering angle, and we'll take the hypothetical road that we so often do. If you were put in charge tomorrow of uh, the parks and resorts division, what would you? What changes would you implement to try and resolve this, and hopefully, perhaps, preserve some of the objectives that the company has with that system, but without, uh, you know, inflicting the pain on guests that this that this overly cumbersome system seems to. There are two options here. One, revert to Disneyland rules, which would be sixty day advance bookings for dining and day of fast pass reservation reservations only. 
Okay. Um, that would be one option. The other option, uh, I'm going to leave dining out of it because that's a probably a debate for another day. But the mm-hmm. one that I like is guests staying at a Disney resort and annual pass holders get one advance booking per day. Then when they get into the park, they get another they get another booking and they can make both bookings upon use a rolling fast pass. So similar to when you use your first three, you can book a fourth, make right. both of them rolling and you can always hold two. That's what I would do. It eliminates tiers and it allows more same day availability. I would, I don't object to any of that, except I think I would actually not give that perk to annual pass holders. Okay. Fair enough. I I feel like this is one situation where egalitarianism doesn't work and we should prioritize the people who are having their perhaps once in a lifetime vacation over the people that are just swinging in for two hours. And if that was a circumstance, I'd be on board with it because I think that's a better option. All right. Promulgated. Yep. So this is why we need to be in upper management. But to the, to that point, I've said here, and it's you know in part my own ego that I'm patting here, but I can look back at what Iger and company have done in Walt Disney World in their tenure and definitively say that I would have done a better job just making decisions because we have a $2 billion head start. You should tweet well, that. The metric depends, though, because if you define doing a better job by being one what Disney, you know, mid 30 to 40 something nerds on a Disney podcast would say, then I agree with you hundred percent. Well, tell if me the is, metric and I still have a $2 billion head start. The metric would be, uh, the market cap of your company and the satisfaction of the shareholders. Okay. So is shareholders satisfaction tied to earnings in the parks? It's usually tied to, tied to growth of earnings. Okay. But even still, again, I have a $2 billion head start. I have $2 billion. And this wasn't a Monday morning quarterback thing. This was at the outset, myself and countless other fans were saying, this is not worth what the investment is going to be. And that was back when it was half the cost. You know who we need to get as a guest on the show is just some random hedge fudge van words, hedge fund manager <laughs> who's you know either bought or sold Disney on a regular basis over time. Because I would love to know what the what what Wall Street thinks about this company. I, I don't think they think about it at all. I think they're probably mostly technical traders who who are perhaps oblivious to that. That they care more about the news that surrounds that two billion dollars than the actual guest experience that that surrounds that two billion dollars. It's an interesting point because especially with that there were some puff piece articles that made its way out there. And I don't know that anybody has publicly been criticized on a grand scale for it, but pretty much anybody tied to that project has been let go. Hmm. So, um, I mean, which, the, which almost certainly means that the people who are the real bad actors are still there. That's <laughs> you know, very, very possible. All of the fall guy necks have been slashed, but I mean, uh, Tom Staggs and Bruce Vaughn were, um, we're tied to it. There was another prominent name that was let go as well. But uh, basically the uh, pre-photoshopped Pandora uh, groundbreaking photo is is a good sign (laughs) for for who was also in next gen. Anyone who doubts whether or not there was legitimate animus in that decision should just go take a look at that photo. That is, that is one of the most petty yet thought provoking. And we don't get a lot of transparency into the mindset of upper management, but I think that is uh, one example of where we can really see the fact that there is definitely some high school drama that takes place in the hallways of that company. They even fired the Navi. He's not walking around Pandora. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So to listeners that have no idea what we're talking about inside Satuli Canteen, there is a uh, groundbreaking of the Pandora project photo. And that, includes uh images of uh joe Rody, um 
John Landau, who was the producer of Avatar. Uh, I think Meg Crofton is still in the photo. And then a couple of like people pick it, picked out of uh, your college uh, catalogs for diversity where they photoshopped out Tom Staggs and Bruce Vaughn. And really, as Josh says, it really was a, a petty, petty thing. But um, anyway, uh, on to some more positive things. Um, we did. We had the uh, the same skipper on Jungle Cruise a couple times, Skipper Palma, who was very good. And it had me starting to question and knowing that we have a good resource on the show and Ben. Who? Um, <laughs> you, you. I, I called oh. you out by name this time. Um, I had a few questions on Jungle Cruise that have kind of come up in recent years. And my understanding is that each scene has a few different jokes that can be told and that kind of allows for the variability of each ride. But basically everything you guys say uh, is, has to be approved. Is that correct? It's supposed to be approved. Okay. Assuming rules are followed. (laughs) Is that correct? If rules are followed, then you're hearing jokes from uh, the original Disneyland script. That's, you know, 40, 50 years old and they're, as bad as the puns might be, then the, the, the original versions <laughs> of them were even worse. Yeah, that that's I remember getting my first script. I can't remember the date that was on it. Again, I'm going to be looking for this. I, I've got some boxes to go through. If I can find that original script, I'm happy to sit here and read them off. But it had uh, it had dates all over it from when the, the scripts were updated. And I do remember <laughs> it being like 20 years since there was like a, a major update to the script that I was given. And so I'm reading these jokes. I'm not getting half the jokes because it's referencing things that are just not <laughs> part of my uh, lexicon. And so, uh, but but again, being the good cast member I was trying to be, I was going with jokes that I only saw on this list. And each each scene, yes, it had. Uh, Do you remember when I, in the 1964 version they they struck the N word from the script? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, moving on. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> uh, I would say seven, you know, seven jokes might be the minimum per scene. And, and some scenes had multiple pages of jokes. Uh, and from my experience, from what I remember doing is going through this script and I was doing jokes that were, that were within that script and doing that for my first several, several cruises until I got away from like management. Cause you're, okay. you're, you're with trainers and you're with, uh, higher ups within the attraction before they ever uh, sign off on you and, and kind of let you go do your own thing. And then they're not monitoring what you're doing. You're just kind of in the rotation and going through. And how and long does that process take? Roughly? For me, for me, it was very quick because uh, I, I got like a test- month, a week. No, no, I got tested out in days. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Others, others, it just became, you know, how comfortable they got with uh, doing the, doing the spiel in front of a crew. And it could take weeks before there was a full sign off on a, on a cast member. And even at that point, if it took, if it took somebody weeks to get signed off on, they still kind of kept an eye on that person for a while after that. So I was, I was signed off real quick and into regular rotation within days. Uh, But, but it was days after that when the management and the trainers weren't around me is when other cast members were coming over to me going, why are you doing those jokes? Why, you know, have you heard these? And that's when they started slipping you some of the stuff that's off script and uh, kind of gave us the lowdown on how we could get away with some of this stuff. Yeah, and so what was the what was the mechanism for oversight? Were, were these are these spiels recorded? Is there anyone really watching, or is it just no? A- no it, again, this is uh, two thousand. So any okay. updates, I'm not aware of uh, right now. What they would do back then, though, is they would scare. I don't. Those were scare tactics. I never saw this happen myself. 
but you were told that management would go out into the jungle into certain spots. And there were easy spots from backstage that you could access. And they would sit and listen to boats passing by in certain areas that they knew things might be going on. And it was enough for you to like be self-conscious going, is somebody out there listening to me? And what would they actually do if I told a, you know, a, a joke that was off script. Right. But uh, as far as like recording yourself now, they did have secret shoppers that would mm-hmm. happen and you'd yeah. have plain clothes uh, people riding your boat. So that's another one where you just never knew. And you always took your chances. I did jokes off script all the time. Uh, they weren't, you know, blue jokes by any means. There were other, there were cast members that really pushed the line with some of the stuff they would say out there. What's a blue joke? Like who blew your uncle? I've heard uh, when you come up to the python that the python is the second largest snake in the jungle. If you're interested in knowing what the largest snake in the jungle is, come talk to me after the cruise is over. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah that, not bad. Good and, uh, and I can see what jungle is after dark. Yep, I've so, heard that one. Yep. <laughs> So how, how about this? Let's phrase it this way. You did, uh, I think the statute of limitations is over at this point. So what <laughs> statute are of limitations jokes? on unapproved jokes. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so, so what are like some of the jokes that we hear all the time that aren't really approved? Uh, examples of that. Oh, let's see. Uh, I know I, one of them that, I, that I'm fairly certain I'm going to wait for you to confirm is going into the temple is the failed yeah, attempt I, at the monorail. I've heard that as a uh, uh, that is that's not on Wait, the script at all. To clarify that for me. So there's beams that are falling, and so this is Disney's first attempt at uh, monorail. Gotcha. Yep. No, that that's totally one. Uh, and what I would say when I go into the temple is, uh, I'm doing it off the top of my head here, so you know, mind a mind a little bit here if I get it off. But uh, it would be, you know, there's a there, there's a entrance here to the temple that wasn't here my last time through. Uh, I don't know what we're going to, you know, I, I would ask the crew, do you want to go through uh, the temple? And I always get a yes. And I go, man, I don't know what we're going to find on the other side. Maybe we'll find adventure. Maybe we'll find excitement. Uh, who am I kidding? We're at Disney World. We're just going to find another gift shop. Right. Uh, that's pretty common. Now, is that an approved joke? No, not an approved joke. And that's okay. also that's also a spot where you're told that, you know, management is always lurking around again. If you if you look at aerials or right behind that temple, that's an easy access point from backstage to the jungle. So a, a manager definitely could be wandering through that area and, and slip off into the side. Not something I ever saw, and I like the joke enough that I always took chances with it and, and did it. The other one, you know, my other ones that I did a lot, and these are you'll hear these a lot now, is the uh, the boats as you're pulling into the dock and exiting. Yeah, those are a lot of those are off script, and that's stuff that's just kind of passed on from cast member to cast member and changed over the years to kind of form with what's going on in the park at that time. What about the just general insults to other cast members? Like, you know, uh, everybody, we've got goodbye to Joe. Uh, Joe's getting fired. He doesn't know it. That sort of thing. Or uh, a lot of no, people, that sort of thing. A lot of those are in the script. Okay. Interesting. Yep. yep. Those are in there. Now for, is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to say, is the script, does that evolve? Because it, it almost seems like the script, it's not the Bible, right? I mean, is, is there a canon that came from, from Disneyland that, that is not to be touched and that's what you're able to pull from? Or is there some official review? Like, is there meetings every six months where you can uh, submit things that are affiliate, uh, you know, assimilated into the official collection of what could be used or how does that work? So in Florida, that kind of goes back on the script that I had, that it actually had dates on there from when it was updated. And it did start with your original one out in California. Now, obviously, the attraction is is pretty different, at least in the layout form. Uh, there's a lot of similar sure. scenes, uh, but they pulled a lot of those jokes over into the one that we had in Florida. 
And it was updated over the years. But again, when I had mine, it had been years since it had been updated. Okay. As far as submission of jokes in Florida, I was never told there was a, a way we could submit a joke. Uh, for review. I do know in California that terrible omission. I mean, if anyone in the park is listening, that is just, that that is a just (laughs) absolute failure of how to make that attraction better. Literally you have thousands of people who are working there. Ostensibly two or three of them are actually going to be funny. Uh, You know, just (laughs) stuff like that just grinds my gears. And I tied that in. (laughs) I like that. Uh, I do know in California that at least near the time I was working in these several years after, I don't know if it currently right this moment is the same way, but they did have a submission process out there. Okay. Uh, you could submit to your management and then it would be taken for review through many people. And if they liked it enough, it would be added to the official script in the California version. That so, makes so much more sense. Yeah. yeah, that's that's how it should be. And it has me thinking of like, the reason why I like the Jungle Cruise so much is that if you get a good skipper, it can easily be the most entertaining 10 minutes of your trip. It, yep. there, there are, there's a big swing there, and I get that, but uh, a good skipper can be, can be a great, great experience. And add in the fact that it's a family favorite, but um, some other kind of general questions that well, I've can I Can I add one thing there for you? I've, I've said this before in the past, and this kind of references on if you want to know, if you want to hear jokes that are really off script, I've said this before. Go ride that ride after seven o'clock at night at seven o'clock at night is when management signs off on an area. And then they start focusing on things like the nighttime fireworks. Mm -hmm. And so they're not around the attractions at all. And that's when you can really get away. One, you you have a lot of college program kids and kids who don't know better working the closing of the uh, attractions. They're always the best. (laughs) That's it. And they have no managers around. So that's, Trust me, the best way, the best time to go ride the Jungle Cruise is always after seven o'clock at night. Uh, that's when you'll you'll get the uh, real fun entertainment out of it. I've that's definitely had better right nighttime uh, yeah. safaris. I think in general, I've had better experiences in Disneyland, and I don't know if it's that you're just that much closer to actors and actresses. But, that's exactly it. Um, it. It seems to be that way. And some jokes that I've heard out in Disneyland that seem relatively tame that uh, I just I don't think um, I've heard in Disney World have really kind of hit home. But to the to the point of the script being so dated, there, there was an Adam Carolla line where he says, you know, cartoons in the 70s and 80s had a lot of mother-in-law humor and a lot of souffle humor. You hear mother-in-law jokes on Jungle Cruise, I'd say about 50% of the time with the two elephants. Yep. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard a souffle joke, but it really is kind of like that 70s, what is souffle humor? Am I? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it <laughs> like the the time that it takes to make a souffle. But <laughs> it, it's a Corolla line where he just says, "We we've uh, the we've stopped doing souffle humor for some reason." But anyway, <laughs> possibly because it wasn't funny. But uh, to to Ben's point of jokes just not registering. Um, so much of it though is if you sell a bad joke, it can work. Uh, but beyond that, though, and not having a proper procedure for adding new jokes in Florida is kind of laughable. Yeah. Um, the The other question I had, though, is going into the temple, I've seen probably 95% of the time it's silent in there. You just you're supposed to look around the temple. You don't hear anything from the cast member. Are there jokes written for the temple? No, it's it's silent. Okay. You have a question about the temple. Yep. Is, is there carbon monoxide detectors in there? Uh, no. And that's, uh, it's hard to fall, you know, keep from falling asleep in there. That might be the reason. (laughs) 
So no jokes, no carbon monoxide. So they're basically just waiting for a, a confirmed kill in there. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and every skipper considers that their break. Uh, yeah. Again, when you're when you're I in a rota- when you're in a rotation, and you might have you know four or five trips in a row. Uh, you enjoy that literally, like you know, forty-five seconds of getting to sit. You—that's the only spot that you are allowed to sit down. You're allowed <clears> to turn around, sit down, and not say anything, and not speak to the guests at all. Kill the lights and just go through there. So, that is your one forty-five second break every nine minutes, and a lot Honestly, of skippers enjoy that. I consider that to be a little bit of brilliance in the design of that attraction because if you, I mean, uh, Gary and Hall, Gary Hall and I joke about this all the time. We're computer nerds and sort of introverts who don't deal well with people. And, you know, I think that's part of what our love for animatronics are, just the deterministic fact that a ride can be exactly the same every single time. And Jungle Cruise obviously departs from that to the extreme and its value proposition is that it's never going to be exactly the same twice. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to put that burden on cast members, I think you do have to give them a break because you can't, people just can't be on continuously for that long so the fact that they designed something like that like that in uh it's just that's a pretty cool little little touch i think having said that i think some of the funniest things that i've heard on that ride have been in the temple and it's, it's <laughs> rare that you hear it but if you've got somebody going through the charlie and the chocolate factory speed yep. you know they're just getting on there when it's dark and just all you need to say is there is no earthly way of knowing and people immediately know what you're doing uh, or jumping into like it's a small world or something else in there, people aren't expecting it, which which works well. Um, I think we may touch on Jungle Cruise later as we discuss uh, the $12,000 tour, but uh, did you have any other insight that perhaps isn't public knowledge on how the Jungle Cruise script works or uh, something that might just be interesting to our guests from an operations standpoint? Uh, no, I mean, it might be something to say for a future episode where we find that script and go through a lot of it. There's, there's certain things that we did. Uh, <laughs> there's certain things that guests would never get to see, such as uh, skipper cruises. Uh, we, we did things when a skipper was uh, working there last night. We would close down the attraction and guests would all be out and we'd gather all the skippers that were working along with all the pirates that were still over at pirates, load up a boat and drive around telling very inappropriate <laughs> jokes. And uh, I, I, having, having, uh, <laughs> having other skippers run through the jungle and maybe riding on the backs of animals and stuff. And when it's really dark and your boat's turning around a corner and you can't see anything. And all of a sudden the spotlight's hitting a guy doing something to an alligator or something. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. Uh, but yeah, there's certain things like that. There, and, and again, a lot of this happens at night. There are a few things that happen that guests could possibly see, but, uh, yeah, that might be something to fun to. To, to talk about down the road and, and give a little bit more insight on. Um, you mentioned an alligator and that uh, sparked this question as well. Uh, we went on it, I believe four times on this last trip and not once was the old smiley joke made. And I wonder if on the heels of the, uh, uh, the boy, the I, 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 I know it was struck uh, from the, from the script. And I don't think that one's ever returned. Uh, I feel that I'd heard it since the kid uh, got attacked, but I definitely didn't hear it this trip. Now, Tim, you've done stand. Let me I, let me ask you a question about that because I, I made a somewhat off-color joke earlier, and I, I was thinking, I, I, I feel like time. no. And historically, comedy is. I think this is a tough line for a company. Let me back up. I think comedy and Disney are two things that have a hard time 
meshing well because Disney's supposed to be this, you know, safe place that's completely inclusive. It doesn't make people feel bad. The the, the Jungle Cruise obviously is a ride that's based largely on comedy, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. comedy frequently is edgy. And uh, you know, what do you do with a joke like that? What do you think is the right move? Do you do you strike that forever out of uh, you know an homage to that to that poor kid, or do you? Does time go on and it becomes something that's okay? And obviously you're not going to make the joke about the kid, but I mean, do you right, put a joke right. that predates him in there or, or is that just uh, taboo for all of eternity at this point? Disney has to play it so safe. I can't really begrudge them from a li- from removing yeah. it. Um, it kind of goes with a few things. So, so like comedy in a theme park, pretty much PG at the harshest. Mm-hmm. mold is pretty tough so it's got to be timing or it's got to be um either you got you got good timing puns and maybe obscure references and i can't imagine many obscure references are accepted but right the timing is going to be difficult for people who are not comedians so you're pretty right. much left with puns which if you look at the script is exactly what you've got for the most part so i'd say your analysis the puns, there is you need some simple. timing and you can have you can have somebody that has good jokes on the Jungle Cruise or anywhere, but they they deliver them poorly, and yeah. it's just simply not as funny. Where and you can also have somebody that has bad material but delivers it well, and they they do better. Um, a, an example that I'll use is Jeff Dunham. I don't know if anybody, yeah, yeah, uh, is I'm sure you're familiar with him, whether you're a fan or not, uh, is is not really relevant here. But uh, I growing up, I had a five minute set of Jeff Dunham. And there was actual comedy there. Whereas now he relies on the characters. He relies on essentially the props and he's a very talented ventriloquist, but he doesn't have to spend as much time writing jokes because he can rely on a cranky old guy that may or may not be racist or racist stereotypes with a, uh, a dead jihadi bomber. Um, right. Thank and, you. And he, he, he can get away with a little bit more there. Jungle Cruise is set up. For uh, it's essentially a prop comedy set for ten minutes. You just have different props that you're moving around. So right, it's carrot top on water. Exactly, and I mean it's not it's not like the carrot top puns, mind you, but you have different things that you're observing, and they're right. set up to a point where you can make jokes about them. Um, so I think the move for the crocodile, if they are sensitive to the point of not wanting to make that joke again, is the crocodile's got to come out of the ride. Because yeah. right now there are two crocodiles sitting on a beach that are just sitting on a beach, not it's doing like, anything. It's like floating by Gallagher's watermelon, and, right. <laughs> and he just like hides the sledgehammer. It's right. like uh, that's a problem. Well, it, it I, I have to say, you know, I think proximity also plays a factor in this because mm-hmm. where those alligators sit right now are still so close to where that incident actually happened. Yeah. This is different than like Disneyland reinserting those jokes where it's a coast to coast deal and nobody thinks of that right when, you know, in those instances, that's so close to where this tragedy happened that I they're in a no win situation. If they were, you know, put those back in, we live in such an outrage culture that it takes people really think about it other than the family. I, I, and us, it made such big news. Yeah, I know. So did 9 11. I mean, there's it, quite it, frankly, there's history has proven one thing over and over and over again, and that's that human beings have an ex- incredibly short memory, even for the things that they claim they will never. Yeah, ever. but if you but make the, the, a, the, the jokes on nine eleven, or you know, there's there's not a lot of comedians out there cracking a lot of comedy on that. Yeah, you're not getting a lot of uh, response on that. It really just 
And when you are like Louis CK and some of that stuff that's leaked out, they're getting, you know, beat on, on social media for doing it. The comedians that are making those jokes are professional comedians as well. So if you can there, uh, when I, when I did stand up, uh, I was told a handful of different things. One of them was, uh, don't make Viagra jokes. They're hacky. Uh, don't make child molester jokes. Nobody wants to hear that component of it. What if you combine them and really fuck the kid? <laughs> and so, so I, I think about, I, I thought about that and said like, you know what? I, I like the, I think there, there are ways for the most part to make a joke about anything, but you need to have the right frame of mind and you need to be willing to, to, or to recognize that if you F it up, you're going to F it up royally and lose yeah. the audience. So if you're willing to make a, and we'll go as harsh as we can for this country, if you're willing to make a 9-11 joke, you need to be willing for that to fail and the rest of your set to fail. Yeah. There's no, you need to be able to make that sacrifice. And you see that when comedians make political jokes, especially in today's climate, that it doesn't really work. And we're getting a little bit removed from Jungle Cruise here. but to Sort the- of, except for the fact that today's climate is the populace that's riding on that attraction. So I think it's, it's relevant, not maybe what we want to spend the rest of the show talking about, but well, it, I mean, the question then becomes, is the old smiley joke sacred? Cause I don't think it is. No, well, I and, agree that, with that. And, and that's what I would say is there's so many jokes in that area that you usually have to rush through and not get the full uh, extent of them. That if you say the old smiley jokes, you don't have enough time to really do the full Schweitzer falls joke. And people usually rush through that joke so fast that the guests don't get the whole Albert falls part of it. I love the Schweitzer falls jokes, but you really, to, to be able to get everything out that's in that script, you have to skip the old smiley jokes. So to me, as a skipper, if they told me to, to cut Old Smiley, I'd be fine with it because it yep. gives me more time to actually explain the Schweitzer Falls joke. Right. Well, that's a good point. Some some quick hit variations that I don't hear as often as I would, and I'm sure that they're not in the script, and that's probably why. Uh, when you uh, go around the bend after the waterfall and you see uh, the downed airplane, the uh, a joke has been made where you're saying, that airplane down can only mean one thing, hippos. Yep. And I, I think the, that, that's, that's in the script. Okay. The the follow-up line to that anti-aircraft hippos has been used a couple of times and that for whatever reason I thought was hilarious. And perhaps because I've heard the regular joke and then hadn't had that tag on top of it. Um, I mean, it's funny it, just because it's a non sequitur, right? I mean, exactly. It exactly. It makes, and that's, that's the type of stuff that I think you need to actually incorporate in a script like that, where adding a, adding the ability to add a tag to an existing joke if nothing else would happen. Yeah. Um, the other one that I, that I heard, and I think I've only heard it in Disneyland and it was 100% a timing joke is when you have the two African elephants, um, you do a huge build up to the first one. You said it's one of the rarest creatures in the entire world. Uh, you're never going to see another one of these ever again. It's an African bull elephant. And then you turn the corner and there's another one. And the skipper looks at the elephant, looks back at the crew, looks at the elephant, looks back at the, uh, at the, uh, at the crew, looks back at the elephant and either says nothing or says something to the effect of that's a polar bear and moves on. <laughs> and it's, it's something where if you have acting chops, if you have comedic chops, you can get away with it on paper. Right. Not really funny, but right. you need the timing to it. It's not offensive to anybody and something that I think would be a great joke that could be submitted by a, by a cast member. Yep. Um, and I'm sure there's countless examples like that. I mean, it's it's sort of the opposite of the uh, of the you know the smiley joke because it 
the beautiful thing about jokes that mean nothing is that it's almost impossible for them to offend anyone. You know, right. That doesn't offend anybody, which is beautiful. Right. So moving away from Jungle Cruise, I guess slightly, uh, went to yeah, Trader Sam's. perfect Sam's segue. That's like really invites the easiest segue we've ever had on the show. <laughs> well, uh, Trader Sam's um, oh, went there. Uh, <laughs> so kind of connected. Uh, went there with my parents for the first time. I had been there before, but my parents, not big drinkers, but still thought that was a great experience. And I recommended it on e-ticket report. Can't recommend it enough. It's just kind of a cool environment. And from four to eight, you can bring kids in there. Uh, really just a fun environment in Florida. And I haven't been to the one in California to the extent that I've hung out in the one in Florida, but definitely recommend it to people just to kind of hang out in there. And I hope there's something uh, in Star Wars land that's an equivalent to that. Well, if it's as small as that is, then you won't be able to get in it for the next five or six years. But uh, yeah, it's intimate. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I did the VR experience over in Disney Springs. Have either of you guys tried that out? The uh, Star Wars Secrets of the Empire? Not me. I've done it at the uh, Venetian in Las Vegas. Okay. So what was that a Star Wars one or another one? It was the same same one. Yep. Okay. Uh, Shadows of the Empire. Uh, very. Uh, I, I dubbed it Secrets of the Ooze for you Ninja Turtles fans. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, really cool experience and something that I, I hope they expand more of. I don't know that it necessarily works in a theme park environment just because the scalability of it is such where you just, I think it's eight people at a time. There's just not enough room to do it. But mm-hmm. I know um, Jim Hill has suggested that they put that on the cruise ships, which makes a ton of sense. Yep. yep. Where, where you put it there and you've, you're dealing with a smaller space and you can kind of get away with it. But that was really a, uh, a cool experience. And I'd, I'd do it again. Uh, I'd probably try the record Ralph one just for a different experience, but uh, was really uh, a nice surprise for us. It's um, one. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever done. Yeah. And, and uh, I remember doing it in Vegas. I was by myself. Had to kill a little time. And again, didn't know. Obviously, with, with having a whenever we go out to Florida, got my wife, got my two little girls. They're not the biggest Star Wars fans in the world. Not the biggest video game fans in the world. So I just never knew if and when I would get the time to go over to uh, Disney Springs to experience it. So having that time in Vegas. Went and did it. Wasn't thinking too much. Heard some of the reviews on several podcasts and things like that. But just uh, the my job was on the floor by the end of it. It was yeah. such an amazing deal. And and if that's the future, I, I, I don't know where they go next. I remember talking to uh, the people out uh, at the front desk running it because the one in Vegas had several different uh, stories and games that you could do. Uh, the Star Wars was not the only option. Uh, there was one that was a horror uh, you you know you were stuck in some horror film, and the lady was like, you know, how are you with jump scares? And I was like, I'm not good with them in a movie theater. And after going through what I just went through in Star Wars, <laughs> I am definitely not good with it. Like as real as this thing makes it out to be, so it, it's it's such an intense and real experience that yeah, I have to actually sit there and think, could I do other versions of this? I don't think I could. Uh, you know, I want to do the Wreck It Ralph. I would love to get out there and try that one. Uh, the neat thing is the void just opened a spot here in uh, North Dallas. So I actually have uh-huh. one about 15 minutes from where I work. They only offer uh, Star Wars right now, but I'm hoping they start rotating some of the other options that they're putting in the other locations uh, with it. But yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And and I hope there is a way that we can figure out to put some of this technology into attractions because I don't know if my wife is willing to pay $40 to go do this, but if there's a, you know, a way that it's a part of a attraction in a park, it's something I would love for her and, and, you know, anybody to experience at some point. 
I would imagine it's going to find its way into parks because if you think about it, um, you know, there's been a pretty strong trend toward screen based attractions. And <laughs> if there's anything that's more cost effective than actually putting screens like beside a roller coaster, for example, it's integrating VR with a roller coaster. And there's there's been several examples of those that have existed. Right. I've never had the chance to experience them, but I but I've heard that they are Almost universally, the feedback I get is that it's much better than what people thought it was going to be. And, so, and see, I, I've done those before, and the void is on a ten times better than what I've done with the VR on a roller coaster. And the crazy thing is, the the roller coaster has the the whole track, the motion, the loops, all that stuff. The right. void essentially is a empty empty room, and it gives you more of a thrill doing that than doing the VR on a roller coaster. The the yeah. stuff the stuff that they portray within that mask is unbelievable and and i think that comes down to to where i was ultimately going to drill to which is just that it's early days for that i mean despite the fact that vr is really as an idea it's been around at the very least since the 80s and perhaps before it's just it's one of those things where the potential exceeds what the technology is capable of delivering right now and i i think that we're we're getting closer and closer and i, I used to think it was pretty much a gimmick but i'm starting to be converted to where i think in the next 10 to 15 years we're going to see it be a pretty viable thing well, I've said this, and Tim, you, you might chuckle after I say it. I've said this to other people who uh, I've talked to this about. I would pay anything for them to video us while, you know, vi- video that room <laughs> yeah. while we're doing the experience. Because there's things, again, you realize that you're in just a regular flat room, but it messes with your mind and your senses so much that when you're walking over hot lava on a, uh, on a uh, platform with no rails, it really feels like you're about to oh, yeah. fall off if you take the wrong step. So I would love to see a video of myself experiencing that from the outside and just watching how stupid we all look while we're going through it. I said it to uh, uh, Derek and Chris. I said it to Marie as we're doing it, uh, uh, doing it in the uh, in the uh, attraction. Not anyway. Um, as you walk <laughs> over that thin grate over lava. It really is bizarre, and I'm sure, and I didn't test this one. I was kind of testing other areas, like where the actual walls are, where the seams are. I tried to punch K2SO in the nuts. But yep. The, <laughs> and actually, to uh, to that point, so uh, K2SO, for people that don't know, is a, uh, a droid in uh, Star Wars Rogue One, and he's kind of your guide at the beginning of this. So you're sitting on a bench, and you're not sure if the bench is even going to be there when you sit down, which is in itself bizarre but a good way to kind of set the stage for, Hey, there's going to be props in here that you're going to be running into. Um, so I'm reaching out for K2SO and he does move away from you as you reach out. So there's a sense of like where this creature that they didn't actually put in, in the room knows to avoid you as you reach out for him. Um, and there were, there were some things like uh, you come up to uh, an area where you have blasters and you see them in your uh, in your goggles, and then you reach for it, and there's a physical blaster that you can pick up. Um, I think in the in the final room there was an R two unit that was physically in the room as well as in your well, uh, in your visor as well. That w- that was the cool part is he is in that last room, and that's when you're told you can take your visor off, and when you take it off, you see the R two unit. Yeah. So that's that's when it really plays in your mind, like how much of this other stuff was really physically there as you're right. going through this experience. Uh, but it really was, I can't recommend it enough to people. Uh, if you're thinking about it at all, do it. Um, we made a reservation like two to three hours beforehand, but you can really, uh, at least on, you know, medium crowd days, walk in and maybe have a half hour wait where you just go shopping and come back. 
but it really was a really uh, a cool experience. And, and, uh, and for any, I any, can't wait to see what they do next. For anybody listening, look, you know, go online and look it up because there are void experiences all over the country now. I know New York, yep. Los Angeles, Utah, uh, Dallas, Vegas, you know, they're, they're all over the place. So you don't have to actually wait until you get out to Florida or to uh, Anaheim to, to, to experience these. You can do these now closer. So the uh, the last thing I wanted to hit on on my trip report was Toy Story Land. So Ben, you've seen it. Josh, I don't believe you have, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. So going in, I think we had our expectations here. For me, mine my expectation was Storybook Circus. A I was hoping for a good execution of a bad theme, and that's a, I think what they did. I think Toy Story doesn't lend itself to. Uh, themed environment as much as say Pandora does or Star Wars or Cars Land. Um, but still it was good execution of a lousy theme and something that I thought should at least uh, be drawn specific attention to is the horticulture team around Slinky Dog Dash. So uh, we looked at this as you're going to have exposed uh, supports for this attraction and if it's something that Andy would have built in his backyard, you would have an overgrown area of grass and they just kind of fill that area with bamboo and things that looked like grass to hide a lot of, uh, a lot of the supports. And if they're, uh, you know, if they don't trim that area to the extent that they normally would and let it be a little bit overgrown, you're going to see a lot of those supports more hidden than they are today, five years from now. And it won't be a terrain-hugging coaster like we're used to, but it'll be better than what the original concept art showed, I think. Hmm. So a little bit of hope for it. Uh, I think uh, the ride itself was longer than I think most people expected, and certainly a step above Barnstormer. It's closer to Mine Train, if not a step above Mine Train as well. Uh, We liked it better than Mine Train. We loved it. Did you experience it both in day and night? Yes. Yep. Yep. And what were your thoughts on that? I, th- I think most outdoor coasters are better at night anyway. And I think yeah. this is along those same lines. Um, it's a lightly themed coaster is what it is. What so, about the land as a whole? Was it good at night? Uh, I think there's a pretty good lighting package in it. I think it's again, though, similar for me in feel to um, storybook circus. It's Ugh. not as detailed as other areas of fantasy land, but it served it served the purpose that it needed to. It's a bridged kiddie land, but has some better attractions. And it has a couple of D-ticket rides. I'd call Slinky Dog a D-ticket, and they call Toy Story a D-ticket. Um, whereas most kiddie lands don't have that. They've generally got a spinner and maybe uh, a lower-tiered roller coaster like a Barnstormer. So right. um, I think it's, it's good for the purpose. I think if people went in expecting this to be on par with what they're building with Star Wars land or even on par with Pandora, then you're going to be woefully disappointed. But I didn't go in with those expectations. So perhaps that helped. But for sure. I, I found it. Vi- go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, I found it very interesting with uh slinky dog because, you know, we've heard the rumors uh, not necessarily rumors. We've seen the confirmation through the uh, final land of all the budget cuts that happened to this area. And especially mm-hmm. the slinky dog attraction. I did always find it funny, though, in the load area, they do have the drawing that Andy put together of what this ride would look like had it not had any budget cuts. I don't know if you paid any attention to that. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't catch that. No. Yeah. It, next time you go look on that back wall and it shows, especially through the second part of the attraction, the uh, Mr. Ham and the Ar- Green, Green Men Army drop where they were going to drop in. There's several different areas that you, and you can look where they cleared the land to put this stuff in. And then at the end, we're just like, nap, screw it. We're not putting it in. And all you got was uh, Wheezy at the very end. But uh, 
yeah, that, that drawing is, you know, for anybody who knows the history and the background of that area being built, it's kind of a slap in the face of like, here's what you could have had and here's what you're getting. <laughs> but it also lends itself to, you know, it's an attraction to where a kid is going to buy new toys. Yeah. Could they ever go back in? And that's how they sweeten that attraction is every few years add a piece of that attraction. Andy got a new toy and he's adding that to the roller coaster and it would give that you know, freshen up that ride, give a new experience that area. Cause I think the wheezy, you know, AA at the very end is actually really cool. Yeah. Uh, and so if you had one or two more show scenes like that, that's added to the attraction over the years it might be worth, you know, looking into and doing. I'm fine with that. I mean, honestly, it, it, I, I've said this over and over again. I think that creative people like Imagineers, they have a problem with the concept of something being done. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that. I mean, I, when I was in high school, I customized cars and stuff and I, you know, it would like be my passion. I'd get obsessed about this thing and then I'd get it the way I want it. And I was bored with it and I would sell it. You know, it's like the, the, uh, the idea of having completed a project to most people is the goal you aspire to. But when you're being creative with something and trying to customize it and make it a reflection of your imagination, keeping it static is boring and not what you want to do. And I, I think that perhaps to some degree, some of the destruction and loss of things we care about in the parks is attributable to that. So I'm very open to the idea of attractions leaving room to be, you know, matured and expanded upon as time goes on. I think it's a creative outlet for those, uh, you know, Imagineers to to do something additive instead of having to wipe, you know, shake the etch a sketch and start over and take away the thing that we care about. So I'm I'm fully supportive of that. Well, I found it interesting that area where they'd be adding these things. They didn't repurpose it for anything else. It's not like they added extended queue through that area right. at all. It's just it's concrete and it's some uh, you know overgrown grass. You easily could Perfect. go in there and add that stuff in there, and it's not going to disrupt the flow of the attraction whatsoever. Right. O- oversized props is the theming in that land, so you can just drop yep. a couple of those in overnight. Really. Yeah, that's and, what I was going to say. You could build them off site and drop them in. You don't even have any real appreciation. Yeah. Downtime. And, and, and the story and the theming lends to it. And, you know, Andy got a new toy. It's as simple yeah. as that. Right. And they very well may do that with Toy Story 4 if new things are introduced. What I think may be more likely is there's a section of that, I assume, where those additions uh, were listed in Andy's drawing of it that's close to the Star Wars land entrance, right? Is yes. That yeah. okay. Yep. That's that's where I sell it. So as of right now, you can peek into Star Wars land, but I don't know how much of a berm is going to be created from a tree line from just, I don't, I don't think they're raising the, uh, the berm height wise anymore, but if you put trees in there, you're going to block a lot of that view. So perhaps right now they're offering guests a view of Star Wars land deliberately. And then when that view is closed off, when Star Wars land opens, perhaps you put more props in that area. So uh, that lends itself, uh, the Toy Story 4 opening, um, this year lends itself to adding more things to that area and oversized props, as we said, can be created off site and dropped in place overnight. I like how the promos we've seen though, are all like taking place at a carnival. So I'm just waiting for carnival games to pop up and down <laughs> the walkways <laughs> yeah. and steal more money. Chester and Hester, baby. Yep. yep. Chester got, and Hester. Got that covered. So uh, why, don't, why don't we move away from that and on to the $12,000 tour Uh, I don't remember what the name of this was, but this has been a topic of conversation on multiple shows uh, on various fan sites. I think it's called the $12,000 tour, I believe. Yes, it's called the $12,000 tour. It's for a group of up to six guests for one to 12 hours. Whoever's doing this for one hour is a moron. Um, But basically, it was described in a variety of different ways as – Anything that's within reason for Disney to do, uh, to do 
you'll you're you'll be going to be able to do on this tour. Yeah. Uh, some of the examples that they put in there was tour of the Cinderella Castle Suite. Um, pilot a jungle cruise uh, boat, maybe not necessarily operate it, but at least spiel uh, on a jungle cruise boat and a handful of other things that um, you wouldn't be able to regularly do as a day guest. Right. So what did you guys think of the price point for this? And if you thought of any ideas that might be something you'd like to do if you were to pay for this. So I have a few thoughts. My, the first reaction I had and I'm talking milliseconds is, wow, that's a lot of money. What a premium experience that this is. And that's insane. But as I, you know, three seconds in, I started amortizing that over six people and realizing that it's not a $12,000 experience for me. It's a $2,000 experience each for me and five of my friends. And through that lens, what is actually ostensibly permitted on it makes it seem quite frankly to me a better deal than paying $200 for a mere park entrance. Right. Um, so I think it's definitely something that if you could be creative enough and come up with the right things to do and assuming of course that Disney would be on board with that and the cast members that they gave you were, you know, did a good job of delivering on what you wanted them to do. Um, I actually think it's maybe one of the most interesting and exciting things that I've heard about in a while. And I definitely have some ideas as to what I would want to do. Now, if you're doing this with a group of friends, there are some of these things that are purely self-indulgent. I'll look at the Jungle Cruise component of it. Yeah. If you're doing that, you're not going to go through the Jungle Cruise six times. That just seems unlikely. You're going to go through the Jungle Cruise and each of you spiel once. That seems like a waste of time from a... uh, I would never do that. That is the noob maneuver right right. there. (laughs) So... Even even once, and don't get me wrong, Ben, you've had the opportunity to do this. I would love to do uh, a day at the Jungle Cruise in front of guests, but doing it in front of just your five friends and right. the the skipper that's piloting the boat and maybe the two uh, people in the horse jockey outfits um, is Which that really is that really satisfactory enough for no. that item alone? No. So what here? And I think you hit on a good point. If you make this about you, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. There, to me, there's two things that can make this a good value proposition. One is access to places in the parks that you you don't normally have. And two is access to people within the parks that you don't normally have. Right. And, and so for me to get my $2,000 worth, if you could put me in front of the right Imagineers at the right places on the right attractions, I could very easily make my money's worth there. And if I had to very, if I spent a lot of time thinking about it, I think I could come up with some incredibly interesting things to do. But if I had to do it in a minute, I would go to all of the podcasts that we've talked on and, and all of the questions we have where we're left sort of scratching our heads saying, well, what happened here? What was the plan here? You know, or mm-hmm. what is, what is this rumor really about? Those are the things I would try and get to the bottom of those. And that, and that's what I would try and use the access for. So, you know, and, and it could be silly things like, you know, talk to, I'd say, I want to spend 30 minutes with the person who's the lead Imagineer on the Skyliner project. Yep. And I would talk to them about the air conditioning. I would talk to them about <laughs> what the strategy is for moving people around. Now, admittedly, you're, you know, the beautiful thing is you're probably, hope in my mind anyway, I don't want a PR person. I want an Imagineer. Right. And my goal here is I don't want to bust the lid off anything. I don't care. I just want to know. I want to get a better understanding as someone who's interested in the operation of the parks and the mentality of the people who are, you know, setting forth the design of this place moving forward. I, I want to know what they're thinking. I'd like to know what, you know, what was their 
what was their real aspirational plan? You know, is what we're getting a budget limited version of what they really wanted, or is this what they really wanted? Or, you know, if it's not, what did they, what are the things that they really thought it should have that they didn't get? I mean, that's the stuff to me that's really fascinating because as much as we talk about Disney and what they do and what things are good and what things are bad, we sometimes, I think, forget that we're outsiders and that company is to some degree an opaque black box that we don't have much visibility into. We look at what's publicly available and we make a lot of assumptions about what went into making that happen. And I, I would just love to know a little bit more uh, from the people who actually are involved in making those decisions. And that, that's, I could get my two grand out of that in 12 hours very easily. Um, before we start getting into ideas of like things that we want to do, I just wanted to look at it from maybe a slightly different perspective and, and see your thought on there. Um, this is a company that we're talking about. That's what $150 per person to get in a day, yep. you get everything. This is a place that charges $500 for a Murphy bed hotel room. Uh, <laughs> you know, $12,000 $12, to them is not a lot of money. I don't think in their world. And some mm -hmm. of the ideas that we were hearing thrown out, I want to stand on top of, you know, spaceship earth. I want to do this and that. Like, I think they think that front of the line access and transportation to and from the parks that's that's a lot right there, right off the bat. Especially when you start breaking it down at two thousand per dollars per person in their heads, they're thinking mm -hmm. like you're you're getting your money's worth with just that right there. The things that they're throwing out there, like hey, we'll take you up to the dream suite and let you look around. So they're going to take you up to an unused hotel room that nobody has access to. That you know, and, and all they're going to let you do is walk around and maybe take a few pictures. We're going to put you on a jungle cruise boat if you want to do that. Uh, you know, what we'll do is we'll just clear out one boat, throw you know seven people in there total and let it ride around once or twice. I, I, I don't, I don't think the, I, I just wonder when people actually start requesting, here's what I want to do on my $12,000 tour, how much pushback they're going to get from Disney yeah. saying, we're not going to let you do that. Or we're not going to let you do that. You're already getting your meals. You're getting into the parks. You're getting front of the line access. What more do you guys want? So I, I have a thought on that. I, I'm glad you brought that up. This is a perfect segue into the point I wanted to make. I didn't, I didn't know how to broach it, um, but you helped. I think that probably from the beginning of this park's existence, people that were incredibly affluent and had the right connections have been able to spend a lot of money to do all the things that anyone could do on this $12,000 tour. Yep. Can I interrupt you one second? Yeah. As a travel, my wife's a travel agent. Mm -hmm. We work with some of these guests. That is absolutely true. If you have the right dollar amount, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. Yep. This, and this is the first time they're making it public. And that's the whole point is what they, what this quote unquote 12, I guarantee you that this is not, this is not a $12,000 tour. What this is, is a public acknowledgement that money will get you special privileges. Yep. And if you go in and you say, I want to go stand on spaceship for $12,000 and they say, no, my suspicion is <laughs> that's not normally a hard word for me to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> my suspicion is that there is some price at which that does become an option. And I think right. what they are essentially doing is making they're trying to create in the mind of the public the idea that this is a place where it is not a Coke. It is not a situation where the billionaire drinks the same Coca-Cola as the uh, you know, person who makes $12,000 a year does. This is a place that is very stratified in what it offers. And if you are a wealthy person who's willing to drop a lot of money, the opportunities available for you here uh, are basically, I'm not going to say limitless, but you know, their wording is not accidental within reason, you know, yeah. well, um, that's incredibly subjective 
And I think that what constitutes reasonableness is going to depend on, you know, exactly on what you pay. And $12,000 is the minimum that you're going to spend. But for 50 grand, I bet you can do a lot that you can't do for 12. That's exactly what I was thinking. The, the, some of these ideas thrown out on the other podcasts in my head was like to them, that's a $50,000 tour, not a $12,000 tour. $12,000 gets you, gets you on flight of passage as many times as you want. And we'll pick you up on the backside and drive you over to rock and roller coaster if needed. But you're not going to do what, you know, all of us think would be the equivalent of a $12,000 tour to them. It's not even in the same, uh, stratosphere it's essentially that magical moment where a girl who was previously a gold digger admits that she's now a full-on prostitute Um, that's basically where we're at here principle now we're just negotiating on the price exactly and you know i don't i'm not even judging them for that this is a for-profit corporation they've got a property that is that has interesting things to offer there is no way to offer some of these things at scale you simply can't you can't have everybody at disney walking on stage that doesn't work but you can have a small number of people do it. So how do you decide which ones do it and which ones don't? You offer it to the ones who can pay. Um, there is plenty of people in society right now who hate capitalism and hate wealth and, and look down on this. And, and I understand, I get it to some degree, but on the other hand, that's just how things are. And Disney is going to uh, take advantage of that. And I suspect that there will be no shortage of people who take them up on this. I, I'm pretty confident that there will be at least some cadre of cast members for whom this becomes their primary job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we've had some clientele who have done VIP tours that frankly, this is a bargain compared to what they were paying before with uh, fewer benefits. They weren't always getting front of the line access with some of these tours. Now this one distinctly is coming out and saying, Hey, we're, we're going to take care of all that for you and your transportation and make things a whole so much easier. Uh, yeah. It's, it's actually, this one is a better bargain for some of these guests who are already spending a ton of money to do these things. I suspect a lot of this is going to be uh, what you might call the third shift, um, simply because, I mean, I could tell you some of the things I want to do, you can't do during normal park operating hours. Right. So, you know, there's some staff that are there 24-7, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, the things that I want to want to do, so many of them would be after hours and things like front of the line access become a no-brainer then, right? If the park's closed, there is no line, so it's not a problem at all. Um, well, what are, what are some of those things that you're yeah, thinking that would have to be third shift? Um, okay, so I'll, I'll just go through some of the quickly some of the things that I that I thought of. One thing I would want to do is I would want access to areas of the park. Well, okay, let me let me go from the very beginning. My passion for the parks stems largely from how they operate. Okay, so one thing I might want to do when the park is open is hang out with an ops guy. Um, one thing I would love to do that I suspect they might say no to because I think it's the right answer is I'd like to hang out with with at the head of security. Let me see how Disney actually handles security. Now, you can understand instantly. Everyone should be going, yeah, they're not going to let you do that. Whatever. Right. Maybe they won't. Um, but, you know, for some price, maybe they will. But if I could have any of my curious itches scratched, that would be one of them. I'd like to know because that's something that's sort of legendary in the, you know, in the annals of Disney is that, you know, they know what everyone's doing and they're keeping track of everybody. I, I'd love to know. I mean, give me a, you know, redacted version of it. I don't. I don't want information that could be used to create harm, but you know, give me some insight into into how you do it. Um, can I be your uh, VIP uh, Disney guide planner? Can I play that role real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, no. What else do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, did I, how much did I offer you for it? But when you said no, uh, that's you, you're just paying the twelve thousand. I'm just looking at your uh, oh, receipt. Oh, and- did I say twelve? I meant twenty four. Uh- 
We're getting closer. The point is, there's a, there's a number here. If I fly in on my Boeing business jet from Dubai, there's probably a price at which you're like, yeah, you know what? They're going to pin the deputy badge on me, and now I'm the director of security for a day. I mean, I, I, I who's the what, captain now? Exactly. <laughs> I'm the captain. That, that's what I see this as is basically saying, look, we are we're going full on supply and demand here you know you let us know what you're willing to pay and i'm sure there are things that won't let you do and i i don't think the company's selling out in a, in a negative way but um but that's one thing i would want selling to do out in other areas just not in this yeah exactly i'd like to go on stage on a lot of attractions yeah. um i'd like to go backstage on on even more um you know the utilidors at this point are so well documented and underwhelming that i don't even think i'd really care about that can you spell um, that for me josh <laughs> the second O's for savings. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a like an annulus between the interior wall and the exterior wall of Spaceship Earth that has a walkway in it. Yep. And I've seen one video, uh, and I've looked for more of people walking in, and there are actually cracks in between the uh, like not really cracks, but like slots in between those. Uh, I forget what they call the panel, the Alucaban panels, where you can look out into future world. I would absolutely love to do that. I think that's really neat. Um, things like that. And then really, like I said, the other thing is access to people. I, I want to talk to the people that are in charge of, uh, you know, the Skyliner. I'd like to talk to, if there's any Imagineers left that were open, that were responsible for putting Epcot together, I'd love to talk to them and just, just basically learn uh, how they think about the things that I care about and maybe get a better understanding of where the company's going from their perspective. Just walk the parks with Tony Baxter for a day. I would love to do that. You could probably do that for less than 12 grand now. Probably hire Tony for you know half that. Yeah, because I don't know that he's employed or taking a Disney paycheck anymore. I don't believe he is. Yeah. Ben, did what you have you any do, ideas? Because you're coming at this from a different perspective, having seen a lot of the backstage stuff. Uh, you know, things like it just seems like things that are, have already been offered before. Your lunch with Imagineers, things like that, I think would be interesting. But I'd take it to another. I'd love to have lunch with the park president. Okay. Something, you know, sit down and actually whatever park we're enjoying at that day, uh, sit and sit and get to talk to them a little bit more. I've always found that, you know, those are interesting conversations. And anytime any of them have ever spoke and been out in public and, and talked about the uh, running of the parks, I've always found that very interesting. Uh, the you only other we thing- can probably get Dan Cockrell on this show. Uh, <laughs> we should do I mean, that. Not, not even yeah. making a joke here. Uh, Dan Heaton of Tomorrow Society had uh, Dan Cockrell on. Uh, a month or so ago, and it was a really cool interview. And we could probably do that. Not really the nature of how we do this, but uh, I'll subpoena him. He's accessible. (laughs) (laughs) You've been served by Marty Cole. My other thing would be, and you know, this goes back to when I was working in the parks and knowing like uh, attractions cycling before they go online, you know, things Mm -hmm. are being built. I was there while rock and roller coaster was being, uh, built and I was there for the opening. I was also there for the weeks ahead of that when they are cycling through and they are, you know, there are instances, there are times that cast members got to go over there and, you know, experience some of that stuff. You know, things like Star Wars Land, uh, Star Wars Land, uh, Galaxy's Edge, sorry, uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Train. You know, at some point, those attractions are going to be online and running and not open to the public right, and right. cleared for safety and everything. If I'm spending 12 grand and I'm at the Hollywood studios and I know, uh, rise of the resistance is going and they're, you know, it, it's at that point where people can actually ride it. I would want to be able to go back there and experience that as part of my day. 
That's a great idea. And that any was, active construction you, site. You made me think of one thing, which is the one thing that you're probably not going to be able to pay them to let you do is openly video or photograph the areas that you go into. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. fine with me too. That's fine. But you know, the Mickey and Mickey and Minnie's runaway train is going to open, you know, let's just say it's May 1st. It's going to be ready for people to ride a month, month and a half ahead of that. So, you know, if I'm there and I'm paying that money and, and my guide knows that I better be able to get in backside and go try it out. Yeah. Cause you know, and, and when you're limiting it to just those six people and you know, I can't, I don't know how many it'll be interesting once they find out how many people are actually taking advantage of this tour on a daily basis. Right. You know that if it's such a small group, I think you could allow that and not have to worry about leaks or anything coming out there to the public, unless it's a, blogger that has paid this money and is going to try to sneak shit in there and well, maybe, look, maybe there's, they there's no reason that they can't have people sign an nda and the yeah, fact exactly that, and the beautiful thing is for the uh, the most part if you when if you have a poor person sign an nda that's useless because you can't sue them for anything because they don't have anything yeah but if you've got someone who's willing to drop 12 grand on you know a few hours at a park they're probably the kind of person who isn't judgment proof and probably doesn't want to get sued and yeah probably most likely interested in having an experience for themselves and their friends and doesn't give, doesn't ha- can't afford to spend two hours blogging about it because they're actually making real money doing something else. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The price point allows for a meaningful NDA. Yep. Yep. So, um, and your idea was great. I didn't want to interrupt you, Tim, but I was going to say, I, I think my bias is showing because my love for the parks is so centered on nostalgia that I immediately thought of, learning primarily about the things that haven't or, or that have been existing forever, you know, and how they came to being Skyliner maybe accepted, but, uh, but your idea is actually much more clever, which is right on the stuff that no one else has been on yet. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta frame this as come up with things you can do $2,000 ahead that you can't do otherwise. So if it's writing new things or experiencing old things in new ways, um, that's kind of the approach that I, that I took to it. And and there's yep. one other thing. There's one other, uh, you know, caveat there. I think it's also something that's not going to cost the Disney company much money to pull off. Right. That? So oh, if they, yeah, yeah. He, the, the tour he, itself. He, I mean. yeah, yeah. Well, you, whatever your request is, uh, Mickey and Minnie call somebody. Yeah. We're run, we're cycling through. That doesn't cost them a dime to open that door and let you get on and go. And so their profit margins off the 12,000 are just that much better. With those I kind agree of with you. And that's why, honestly, and that's, uh, you did a better job of saying it than I did, but that's why this is really a smart idea because, uh, you know, I think this has existed forever, but to make it public, I mean, if you have some sort of resource that, um, you know, a airline is a classic example, like the shelf life on an, on a empty airline seat is zero, right? The minute that the airline airplane pushes back from the gate with an empty seat, your ability to generate revenue on that seat drops to zero instantly. And, and Disney has a lot of this. They have these off hours. They have these, you know, uh, you know, this opportunity to generate revenue with this infrastructure that they haven't tapped into. Um, that has basically infinite return because the costs don't go up and the revenue goes through the roof where it's the literal opposite of my magic plus where you're, you're just pumping incredible amounts of money into something and hoping that it has some marginal return. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard Tim say the words move the needle, on podcast, you know, but <laughs> the point is well taken because that's generally the idea behind these capital investments is that they're going to, there's going to be an ROI there. And whether you want to recapture that money in three years or four years or five years or whatever, um, 
you, you know, it's a lot of work to do that. But this is something where you don't spend any money and you instantly get more money in. It's it's the closest thing to magic that you can do in the world of business, I would say. <laughs> it's arbitrage. <laughs> so Look moving away up. from this and on to those new attractions that we want to experience before anybody else, Attractions Magazine last month posted a what they're claiming is a scene-by-scene breakdown of the Rise of the Resistance ride coming to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Um, for people that haven't recognize the names of these rides. Star Wars Rise of the Resistance is the trackless ride system, uh, not the Millennium Falcon experience. And I don't really want to go in too much detail simply because there are people that are listening that probably uh, don't want to have the attraction spoiled here. But if you just search Attractions Magazine Rise of the Resistance, you're going to find the full breakdown. Um, but Ben, you you had wanted to talk about this and perhaps in like broader strokes, uh, what did you take away from this article? Uh, the thing I probably took away the most was the length of the attraction and the experience. I think we're all dreading and fearing how long it's going to take to get into uh, Galaxy's Edge. And then once you're inside there, how long it's going to take to experience both attractions, let alone go to the different restaurants or any other experiences they have in there. Uh you know, the, the, the rumors that have come out and basically on the layout that it's, it's saying from the first pre-show experience to the end of the attraction and exit, you know, you're looking from what, what 25, 27 minutes is what they're planning on having you in there. So the length of the attraction was the first thing that excited me. This isn't uh this isn't Navi river adventure journey, mm-hmm. whatever, where you're in line for 90 minutes for a two minute payoff. Uh, same with, you know, Peter Pan's flight. How long is that every day? And it's just the return on your investment in time is not justifiable, uh, in my opinion. This one sounds like if you're going to be in line for several hours, you're you're getting a long enough experience that you can justify that wait. Uh, the other thing inside there is the references to multiple audio animatronic figures inside it. And it sounds like we're going to be exposed to many physical sets. Uh, I'm sure there'll be screens incorporated into those physical sets to... Uh, incorporate space and, and make it feel like you are on, uh, you know, out, out in the galaxy itself. But the majority of the attraction being around the physical sets, the physical effects that they're going to pull off inside the ride, uh, it seems like things are going to happen in front of you that just we've never seen on an attraction before. And then the the multiple use of, you know, without getting into spoilers on, on who's there and what's there, but the multiple audio animatronic figures that we're going to see throughout the ride, it basically just hit on everything I was hoping this attraction would be. It, it sounds big. Sounds like the biggest thing they've ever done. And I think we're going to get just a wonderful experience from it. You mentioned the lengthy, um, lengthy overall experience. Just to be clear, nobody should be expecting a 25 minute ride here, but Correct. it sounds like there are uh, multiple pre-show components yep. to this that would elongate it. And those pre-shows are probably going to be to the extent from a complexity standpoint, if not more so as like a haunted mansion pre-show where you've got moving parts or perhaps even like an escape from Gringotts. I, I was going to say, yeah, Gringotts is, it's probably from that first scene where you're in the uh, small room with, uh, with, I don't even know the character's names off the top of my head, but the, uh, the Weasley uh, guy, and then it leads into the elevator and then into the uh, chamber where you get on the attraction. I think that's the equivalent experience of, of what this is going to be. Now you can get that, length of time on something like flight of passage, maybe not 25 minutes, but probably 15 to 20 for that. But then you have some lousy pre-shows where you're watching screens. It sounds like this is a bit beyond that, which is great. 
Um, so yeah, it'll just, be it'll be interesting yeah. with after that first pre-show where you actually get on the the Star Destroyer and then you know it sounds like you've been taken prisoner. I'm I'm very interested in how the cast members will act when you're up there. They're going to be part. Uh, you know, you're 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 essentially the bad guy at that point, and they're processing you, and you've been captured. You know, are we going to have a haunted mansion type feel where the uh, cast members are, you know, mean or whatever? It, it'll be interesting how the experience will change once you get off of that first pre-show experience, and then you're actually on the ship before you you know get on the attraction itself. What's also interesting about this is there aren't many futuristic Disney attractions that have like the straight lines that you see in the concept art for this. And I'm not sure if I'm explaining this right, but um, the, the star destroyer itself is very angular and not uh, there's no landscaping in it. It's an interior of a very mechanical looking ship and Disney hasn't really pulled off scenes like that on a grand scale before. For the most part, they've had some sort of foliage either represented uh, with actual foliage or, or things like that. This is going to be a very mechanical interior building. And I'm in, I'm interested to see if they can pull that off from a pure optics standpoint. I don't know if you guys have even thought about it that way, but no, I mean, I futurism is like probably my favorite thing. And it's, it's one of it. It's one of the memories I hold most dear about Disney. When I went there is that Tomorrowland and future world at Epcot were both, in my opinion, still to this day, beautiful embodiments of what the future might look like. And and that's a, that's a really hard thing to do. And I think it's something that Disney company has struggled with because by its nature, it tends to date out because it's, it's like fashion. Um, you know, if you buy the coolest shirt today, uh, in five years, people probably laugh at you for wearing it, but ironically in 10 years, it will become cool again. Um, and that's, that's something that I think they've struggled to deal with. Um, but I think that if you create, if you have a good story and you execute it well, people will buy it. It doesn't have to be correct. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you don't, to, to create a compelling scene of the future, it doesn't have to actually accurately reflect what the future becomes. It just has to be a well thought out representation of what the future might be. And that'll be okay because none of us, to, as far as I know, have a crystal ball or a time machine. Um, so I think that, you know, the proper budget, the proper attention to detail, uh, and the proper amount of thoughtfulness will create an inspiring experience here. Um, and Disney, I think has shown that they have the ability to do that. So I, I have a high level of confidence in their ability to pull that off. And I think based on the article, how that read, and then the concept art that we've seen, uh, we've seen inside the ride, they've shown teasers inside the ride. Yeah. At least well, the- the We've seen inside the room, but we also seen the the artwork of the hangar bay, which mm-hmm. it sounds like that's going to be the first room that you see when you get off your pre-show experience. The door is going to open. You're going to be on the Star Destroyer, but you're going to be in this massive room with full-size TIE fighters, with stormtroopers uh, walking around that are carrying out their job with a floor-to-ceiling screen that looks out into the expanse of space. I think that's their jaw-dropping moment in that part of the attraction. That that's if that's the first thing that you see as you're going into this building before you ever get on the ride. Uh, that just gives me goosebumps, you know, just thinking about it. If they can pull off what they've shown in that concept art, uh, it makes me very, very excited based on what everything else I read that you're going to do on that ride. We've criticized Imagineers on this show, not necessarily the Imagineers, but Disney in general. Um, 
And I say that caveat simply because in many cases, Imagineers have been either forced to do something that they're not enthusiastic about themselves or not given an appropriate budget. Yep. This is a situation where the people that are working on this project love Star Wars. They're beyond passionate about Star Wars. Um, I believe Scott Trowbridge at a D23 Expo said something to the effect of he's getting moist thinking about it. <laughs> it was, it was a, a cringeworthy thing from, that you wouldn't expect from a... From a but in the best possible way. Yes. We are going to have to put that disclaimer on the start of this show now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was something to that effect where <laughs> people were looking around and like, did he really just say that? Uh, you don't really I love expect it. To happen. So anyway, the, the passion is certainly there. And I would pay twelve thousand dollars to your imaginaries. <laughs> we know the budget is certainly there as well. Um, well, and, and that goes to what you said: if if they can pull off this look in the field, based on who they have working on this and what they have pulled off in the Passover Universal, I'm one hundred percent sure they can pull off what we're all expecting to see. Yeah, I have a lot of hope there, and you bring up a great point because that mechanical look that I was talking about earlier is largely represented in Spider Man. Um, yep. And it's it's represented in Transformers as well, but I don't know that uh, Trowbridge had much to do with that attraction. I think that uh, post-dated him, but um, there are components of that that are very prevalent in, uh, in Spider-Man. Um, our expectations are incredibly high for this, as they should be. You're, what you said yeah. about Spider-Man is interesting, that I think we'll have a different experience on this ride. Where Spider-Man, you know, the Spider-Man and even the Transformers ride, there's so much open space. You feel like you're in very large rooms at all times. This ride has some of the descriptions are the small hallways that you're shooting down when you've been, you know, split off and you're by yourself. I, I like the confined areas of some of this attraction. It seems like you're being very some very big, massive rooms, but you're also going to be in some very tight corridors being chased by certain things that is going to give a level of... Uh, you know, almost horror, like, you know, the, the, there is going to be some intense scenes in there that we're not used to. Uh, you know, every other ride like this has been such big, wide open areas, and you just can be a little part of that. I like some of the intimacy that, that it looks like they're going to be bringing to this attraction. I think it's it's something where we haven't had a thing Disney is building that we've been this excited about in quite some time. Um, possibly even in our lifetimes, because it is so ambitious. Uh, they recognize how important it is to the future of these parks, and they're giving it the appropriate budget. It, it is something that everybody is passionate about that is working on it. It really ha- has the potential to be twice as good as anything we've ever seen. Uh, expectations are that high. Um, Which, yeah, I, I think that... Disney has sort of learned that in the world of the internet, um, you have to deliver, you know, back in the eighties, even in the nineties, for the most part, the majority of guests that would encounter a new experience weren't really primed to expect much. So expectations sort of existed organically. Whereas now everybody is, you know, everybody's flying a drone over the construction site. Everybody's running stories on this. So, um, if Disney doesn't do anything to actively suppress the expectations, the expectations are going to be high. And I think they got a little bit of a taste of that with Avatar. And um, that gives me some hope for uh, for Galaxy's Edge. I, I think they realize that if they don't deliver here, that it's going to be uh, – it, it's going to essentially be a confirmation that Universal has surpassed them in terms of t- delivering a themed experience. Right, right. Can, can I throw a little curveball at you guys that we didn't sure. discuss pre-show? Never ask for permission. 
Well, <laughs> you might you might regret that after this, but uh, the the. the there's a rumor that has hit the uh, Diz Twitter today. It might have been a message board rumor, but it's a rumor enough that there's been enough uh, name people sit out there and address it and look at it. But the rumor was that they might be further behind on the Millennium Falcon ride than uh, first thought. And there's a chance that it might not be ready for opening day at Disneyland. How big of a massive failure would that be if they were to open that land with only one of the two attractions up and running? So uh, I want to Disneyland couldn't handle it. Don't open it. Yeah, I, I agree. Don't open the land. Yep. The look, look, you do it correct. I, I learned this from watching Kitchen Nightmares. Okay, quality matters. If you, you donkey, <laughs> panini head. <laughs> look, <laughs> shit happens. You know, the ideal scenario is certainly that they come in early and under budget, but the reality of it is that that doesn't always happen. And if the thing is not ready to open, then you don't open it. Are there going to be people who are pissed off? Yes. But look, there's a very specific reason that the company does not announce uh, opening dates until they know that they can hit them. And they need to they need to leverage that advantage. See rivers of light. They, oh, you, you, know, <laughs> you, you get one chance to make a first impression. And to do it, to, to spend billions of dollars and years of development and construction to have a subpar opening day. I mean, see Disneyland 1955, where women's heels were sinking into the molten asphalt. It's not how you do it. You, you, you open the thing when it's ready. And if it's not ready, you don't open it, period. End of story. Having said that, we heard the exact same thing about Navi River Journey. <laughs> leading leading up to it and you can argue whether or not it was ready um i happen I to like that, the i guess that's the, i guess that's the hard part is is who but gets I mean, to decide when it's actually ready. but i mean some that was something where i think we got the attraction that they planned on i yeah. just think people expected more of that but we yeah. were hearing we were hearing the same thing about that attraction leading up to the opening day of pandora that it wasn't going to be ready and actually probably a year if not 18 months before they were saying that that ride was behind so which that one baffles my mind when you see this, the finished product of that not being ready. I could see something with Millennium Falcon being a completely new ride system with them trying to figure out, you know, the best way for people to experience this ride. I could see something like this actually being delayed. Navi River, I I don't get it outside of the audio animatronic at the very right. end, maybe need some extra work. But the, the bones of that attraction are very simple. But I mean, right. when I hear someone 18 months out say the thing's not going to be ready in time, I'm know. like, go look up the Apollo program, okay? Yeah, um, know. You know, that's a, 18 months is a long time. Um, you know, it, six weeks, okay, I get it. There are problems that are not solvable because of the laws of physics, whatever. But at 18 months, if you're saying the thing can't be ready, it's probably at that point just you're basically deciding that you're not going to dedicate the resources to it that it needs. Well, based on this, this rumor for the millennium Falcon though, we're months out from that Disneyland opening. So this, this could be their Oh shit moment. If yeah. they're, if they're actually having that right now, I think the goal has got to be a mor- Memorial day there. And yeah. I mean, there's comes a point at which I, I would think because obviously we have non, non simultaneous openings of California, Florida, um, mm-hmm. if, if the California date slips, there might come a point at which you decide to do them concurrently. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm going to guess that, and I don't know who, where this rumor started, but they would be, especially in California, making a tremendous mistake if they didn't open the, both attractions at the same time, unless there yeah. was like a year plus delay on the Millennium Falcon attraction. Um, it just seems that, 
but the experience would be so bad to have that demand yeah. and have yeah. so little capacity to, to serve those people. You're dooming yourself to, to horrific right. reviews. I mean, it, it's going to be a, a public relations nightmare. The uh, To the point of the demand, uh, at the last earnings call, Bob Iger did say that they probably wouldn't be pushing the promotions on this for the, uh, that much. Yeah, you think? They don't, <laughs> they, they don't really need to. Yeah, why would you? Uh, they're gonna. They're already gonna have attendance be so heavy, yeah. without much promotion. That here's the, the ad that you run. Don't come here. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, and and, and this rumor could be total bullcrap anyway. Total- but yeah, I think it's a good hypothetical that we had there. That if everything's not ready that opening day, delay. I I, I agree yeah. with you on there. A hundred percent. Do it right, I, because the thing is, no one is really going to remember what the actual schedule was, but everyone is going to remember what the first, what the initial impression was. So, you know, you bias your decision in favor of what's going to stick. And that, and that's, you know, look, Disney, Disneyland is great. I've never been there. I really want to go there. That's like definitely on my bucket list, but, and I understand that there are probably people that are speculating as to when this land is going to open, but that's their problem. They took that risk. But as soon as as soon as the Walt Disney Company takes the affirmative step of saying this thing is now ready for you to come in and experience, then it is fair game for consumers to judge it. And why in the world would you invite the world to judge the thing when it's 50% of what it's supposed to be? It's just the wrong move. And has Disney actually ever come out and said, like, do they consider one of these attractions the main attraction of the area or is it considered 1A, 1B? Is If the Millennium Falcon is the main ride, over rise of resistance, which I don't see it that way. But if they consider it that way, like I don't think they a, really have publicly said that. I mean, we've Iger sort of inferred it, but that he he said surprisingly he liked the Millennium Falcon ride better. That's um, I remember hearing something like that. Yeah, but I, I think the internal promotion and actually what they've put out even somewhat publicly is that Rise of the Resistance will have every trick in the Imagineers playbook in it, and that's the one that they're expecting to be the number one attraction in the world. Well, opening. but, uh, but for the fanboys, it doesn't have that one thing, the actual millennium Falcon, right? Like right. I, the, that's a the, huge, huge drop. Yeah. So if I just can't see you not having the millennium Falcon up and running on opening day, if that were the case, like that, that's just the biggest mistake they could ever pull off. Right. So I think on, on that, we had teased at the beginning of the show that we would discuss Josh's wreck at Ralph artificial intelligence attraction, uh, in greater detail, but we're at about an hour and a half. And, uh, and the good news is that ride will build itself. Yeah, it will. Uh, it's the way that these <laughs> things work. Um, so rather than get too deep into that, I just had two quick questions related to it. And you guys, if you have questions in a similar vein, perhaps you throw them out there. Um, one of them is stemming from Ben having an inside out attraction idea for the imagination pavilion, which so was the better. That's the better idea. Clearly. I'll ask. I'll ask Josh this question since the Wreck-It Ralph one was your idea. Does this have to go into the Imagination Pavilion, or can it just go in Future World? Doesn't matter. Okay. I, I, I my my entire if there's any thesis I have is that there should be no rigidity with regard to where things go. They should go where they make the most sense. And I I think that Inside Out could work there, but mm-hmm. I don't think that it has to go there. I think find the right story to tell find the place to tell it and then do it and don't limit yourself to the constraints of existing pavilions. Good. Because that Rhine river adventure building is empty it's open. and ready <laughs> for something to go in. So Rick and Ralph. there's some folding tables and chairs in there. We can clear those out with be going okay. vertical by tomorrow. 
so so that's one of the questions that I had. And the other one that I had uh, with the intent of totally shitting on Josh's idea should this idea be dismissed outright because Vision from the Avengers is a better option, even though he's not usable in Florida? Well, okay. I want to respond to that. First of all, I don't know about Marvel or Avengers of any of these things. He's <laughs> like, who's Vision? <laughs> all right. But I'm going to argue against my own interests here. Okay. Um, and I've heard you talk about this on eTicket. Contractual requirements never make anything impossible. Right. All they do is increase the price. Yep. So if the reason is, so if, the, if you have a great, if you have the best idea in the world, and the only thing that is keeping you from executing that is a contract, then I would say there are no real barriers there. You just have yep. to de- decide whether or not you're willing to spend what it will take in order for the other party to sell you the rights that they have pursuant to that contract. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think my idea should be dismissed outright. I don't think it's a binary situation where my idea is either something that should be built or something that should be dismissed. Um, but uh, I would never foreclose an idea simply because we don't currently have the intellectual property rights to build it tomorrow. So the reason why I pose the question this way is because we're trying to come at these things from an approach that's different from the executive approach, where the story that Josh, you started with artificial intelligence, you didn't start with Wreck-It Ralph, right? Correct. So that's where we look at, um, this is something artificial intelligence as a concept makes sense for future world in Epcot. No so doubt. I think we can all get behind that logic. And if Wreck-It Ralph is the best treatment for that, then that's the, the story we tell. Uh, I think we would defend saying we want to do an artificial intelligence attraction and it shouldn't have an intellectual property because that's a better way to tell the story. Perhaps that's correct, too. I'm fine with that, too. I, if, I mean, let me put it another but the, way. The, the assignment was tying it to an IP. So, But if I were to shut down your idea over mine, then I am committing the exact sin that I rally against, which is <laughs> it's essentially the, the opposite of true creativeness, which is deciding that the only you, you know lens through which you can tell your story is some IP that's already been made into a film. Like My idea is much more simple. It's just like, let's find the most compelling stories in the world to tell and then find the most creative way to tell them. And if there is an IP that lends itself to that, then great. If there's not, then let's create it. That's the beautiful thing about intellectual property is that if you use your intellect, you could create new ones. So there is no limit. I mean, yeah. I want to cut the handcuffs off Imagineering. And, I, and I, I, I'm I, pretty sure that I'm not alone. I think there's probably a lot of Imagineers that are pretty frustrated by the fact that the that the uh, you know that their storytelling is being limited by existing things. They're basically be they're basically being they told to make a ride ap- adaptation of someone else's story. Yeah, exactly. That's not what they want to do. I don't know if you guys had any questions in kind of that similar broader scope on the Wreck-It Ralph attraction. Um, if not, then we can wrap it. Did you guys have anything b- before we get into the nitty gritty of that, maybe on the next show? Yeah, we can wrap it. I mean, I have some ideas for detail. I I still don't have a full storyboard for that, but I, I have some ideas. But, you know, we've been going for like probably 145 now, so I'd say we, yeah, we so could save we, it. Why don't we push that to episode seven Yeah, and we can wrap it here. 
So if you have any questions or topic ideas beyond the Wreck-It Ralph attraction and likely the Inside Out attraction being our next two shows, you can email us at martycalled at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the username at martycalled or join in on the discussions in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash martycalled. We'd also appreciate our listeners bookmarking our Amazon affiliate links over at martycalled.com. doesn't cost you anything, but helps fund the show with purchases you're going to make anyway. So Ben, where can we find you online? Well, you can find me at... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, switch microphones for a minute. Sorry. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RealSkipperBen. And you can find my uh, top 10, Skipper Ben's top 10 columns in each uh, issue of Attractions Magazine. And Josh, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at utilidors.com. That's utila and then doors with two O's uh, dot com. Beautiful, original Epcot work there that is not infringing on anyone's copyright, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> um, so go ahead and check that out. And I, I would like to uh, double down on Tim's request. Send in your ideas because, um, you know, like we talked about in the, uh, you know, in the Jungle Cruise part of the show, the, the key to really making these things great is getting the collective input of a lot of people. So right. um, we, we want to hear what you've got to say, because I'm sure right now there's somebody sitting there listening to that who has a way better idea than we did. And, and uh, personally, I want to hear it. And I know when I go on my $12,000 VIP tour, I'm going to buy our group t-shirts at utilidors.com. <laughs> Damn right you are. <laughs> that's how I'm going to pay my two grand. Marty called family tour. Uh, you can find me at WDW theme parks on Twitter, facebook.com slash WDW theme parks. And hopefully we'll be back in less than a month to start that future conversation on the record Ralph ride. I think now that the holidays are over, we should be able to be a little more regular. I think (laughs) get that Metamucil in you and you'll need to be so regular. Thanks for listening. Good night. Peace. (laughs) Happy February. That's awesome. That's going at the end of the show. Yep, that's how we close it. God like, damn it. I just picture Tim walking through Abbey Road and like tripping over a kick drum. Just hit my uh, my uh, funny. Sorry, band. Paul. <laughs>